Welcome back, everybody, to Then There Were Two, a History of the World series. I'm Jeffrey Clark, being joined virtually, as always, by Lucas Mitzel. Lucas, let's talk about things. Indeed, we have a very interesting episode this week, as for those of you who have at least a decent amount of familiarity with Major League Baseball and its history, you're coming into this episode about 1994 and going, wait a minute, why are they doing an episode about 1994? There was no World Series this year. Well, before we get into that, I have a quick addendum from our last episode, 1993. We got so lost in the conversation, I meant to bring this up, but I completely forgot about it. Lucas, as a 90s kid, do you remember the always Coca-Cola jingle that used to play on TV and on the radio? I remember the jingle. So... You may or may not know this, but Coca-Cola was, in fact, a big sponsor for the 1993 Blue Jays. And they decided to take the always Coca-Cola jingle that I first discovered during the Atlanta Olympics and then rediscovered when they played on the radio during the 97 Bulls broadcasts, which obviously are fond memories for me. But they took the jingle and they wrote new lyrics to relate to the 93 Blue Jays. They had one during the season, then they wrote new lyrics again during the playoffs, and then they had one more that aired during the first commercial break after the 93 World Series ended congratulating the Blue Jays. In fact, they played those jingles during the official team film, not the World Series film, the team film. So... I was looking forward to that because, while I don't remember the brunt of those always Coca-Cola jingle ads, I remember it enough that it made a strong impression on me. And I'm thinking, wow, this is actually really cool that Coca-Cola had the audacity to do this. And actually, when the Blue Jays would make another series playoff run 20 years later, it was such a memorable thing for Blue Jays fans that new lyrics were written again for the 2015 and 16 Blue Jays, respectively. So if you talk to any Blue Jays fan from that era, especially, I'm sure they'll remember that fondly. And I know that they will fondly talk about those jingles as well as the baseball that went with it. Indeed. Good addendum. Thank you, Coca-Cola. Yeah, it's very interesting how we're giving this shameless plug for Coca-Cola now, considering that in the 60s and I think the 50s especially, Coca-Cola was the sponsor for the World Series films, and Major League Baseball productions went out of its way to feature people drinking Coke in the stands or vendors selling Coke. So... It's just interesting how we're kind of coming full circle here. Yeah, I was going to say that was a lot of product placement in a lot of those early World Series films that we were watching in preparation for this. And yeah, like you said, it just kind of brings everything full circle. And so, all right, let's talk a little bit about 1994. Okay, so this goes back actually to September 1992. The owners fired Faye Vincent as commissioner. They replaced him with Brewers owner Bud Selig. And a lot of teams in smaller markets had trouble both on the field and as far as their books were concerned. And the owners decided that the only way to ensure competitive balance would be a salary cap. And the union would not agree to that because they thought it was a not very subtle attempt to line the owners' pockets a lot more. The owners wanted change. The players wanted things to stay the same. So the players decided that they would strike on August 12th if necessary. They picked that date 
because it would rob the owners of their two greatest assets, the pennant races and the World Series. At this point in the season, the players have received most of their salary, but the owners were still counting on the money from the playoffs. And the union was ready to hold out for as long as they could because they had a strike relief fund of $175 million. And to make a long story short, for the first time since 1904, there was no World Series. 1904 was the year in which Giants owner John Brush would not play the American League champion because he felt the American League was a novelty and thus inferior to the National League. And ironically, he was the man who would end up saving the World Series by writing up the rules saying that the two pennant winners had to play each other every year. The World Series, as we now know, it began in 1905, although it actually began in 1903. And throughout all the difficulties in the country, including two world wars, there was always a World Series. And even during the Great Depression, we saw the World Series. And finally, labor, greed, call it whatever you want, stopped baseball in its tracks. And there would not be a World Series played or a champion crowned in 1994. Yeah, and that was definitely a huge black eye on the sport. You know, we've talked about how this is America's pastime and so many exciting moments. And you're coming off of some phenomenal series. I mean, we go back even just as far as last year. The way that that run ended with the Joe Carter walk-off home run with his team trailing to win the championship. And you have all of this momentum going. You've got some heated pennant races. There's some guys chasing potential history down the line. And just like that, it's all gone. President Bill Clinton appointed former Labor Secretary Bill Ussery to mediate the dispute, but he did not get anywhere with that. In December of that year, the owners made one last offer that still included the salary cap. The union obviously refused that, and the owners officially declared an impasse, which meant that as long as they negotiated in good faith, they legally could put their final offer into effect, whether the players liked it or not which is very similar to how another season would play out in the distant future. And I'm not really looking forward to talking about that, but we'll get to that when we get to that. Obviously, the owners did not negotiate in good faith, so the union filed a complaint with the National Labor Relations Board, and they agreed with the union, and it voted to seek a court order that would force the owners to let the players play under the old rules until they could reach a new agreement. And federal judge and future Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor issued just that order on March 31st. And the owners were forced to let the players return to the field for the 1995 season, albeit several days later than usual. And eventually the strike would cost the owners and the players an estimated $1 billion dollars. And the union would declare victory. When the sides did reach an agreement, the salary cap would not be a thing, and it's still not a thing to this day. The average player salary dropped 5% in 95, but they soon skyrocketed to insane levels. And today they're getting more insane, as we just found out. Yeah, I mean, this is uh, kind of an interesting thing that we're talking about this now in the wake of the Shohei Otani 10-year $700 million deal that's not truly a $700 million deal. We can get a little bit more into that maybe a little bit further down the line. And the one team everybody always talks about for 1994 as really getting screwed over is the Montreal Expos. When play stopped, they had a 74-40 and record. 
And they had a great manager in Felipe Alou, who would go on to a National League Manager of the Year. And some of the names included Larry Walker, John Wetland, Moises Alou, Felipe's son, and Pedro Martinez, not to mention Marquise Grissom, Ken Hill. After the strike killed the season, that meant the end of baseball in Montreal. It would go on to survive another 10 years. But because the franchise was so strapped for cash, the Expos had to sell off anybody of value over the next few years. As Larry Walker would later say, when I talk to my teammates about that 1994 team, we always say, what if? And sure enough, after the 2004 season, the Expos would leave Canada. They would settle in our nation's capital. Washington would have a baseball team for the first time in over 30 years, and they would be renamed the Nationals. Montreal still has not had baseball since that time. And it's just really sad how we're talking about this. I mean, baseball is looking to expand these days. You know, Nashville is a city that is highly talked about. The athletics are getting ready to move to Las Vegas, although it's relocation. And we are still hoping, probably beyond hope, that the Expos return to Montreal at some point. But even now, I would say that it's looking like a pipe dream in favor of growing markets in the U.S. Yeah, I would assume we'd probably be more likely to see a Nashville, like you mentioned. I think I've heard Portland as something else that's been thrown out into the ether. I mean, I'm sure there's other markets that they would want to try to tap into before trying to go back to what I would assume they would consider as a failed experiment. Their words, not mine, in Montreal. So let's address the elephants in the room. A lot of you are probably asking, why is this episode entitled 1994 Simulations Atlanta Braves versus Chicago White Sox? Well, let us take you back to yesteryear. Earlier this year, I wrapped up a 10-year run as the host of 90s Youth Life, which was a podcast I did about 90s youth culture. In 2018, Lucas and I were texting, and we were talking about these numerous simulated tournaments that he had done for his blog, Confessions of a Sportscaster, which has also gone by the wayside except for our pickums that we still do during football season. And he had talked about pairing all of these historical teams in baseball and basketball with various tournaments that he had done over the course of that blog. And eventually, we thought... Hey, how would the 1994 playoffs played out had the teams that were in playoff position when the season stopped made it into the playoffs in those spots? So I gave Lucas the task of simulating just that. And to make a long story short, he was able to come up with the World Series that surprisingly did not include those 94 Expos that everybody talks about. Instead... In this universe, the Braves are in the World Series for the third time in four years, and the White Sox are in the World Series for the first time since 1959. And the purpose of all of this was to share the results on my 90s podcast. So we did just that, and we recorded it, and this has been sitting in my archives for the past five years, waiting for God knows what, probably deletion eventually, but thankfully, I saved it. So we are going to present this World Series simulation as we recorded it in 2018. 
I'm excited about this one, so just kind of a brief background, because we're not going to go through the entire 1994 episode. It was long, there are a lot of references that wouldn't make sense without the full context, so just to kind of give you a background, the way the simulation worked is, like Jeffrey said, we went ahead and did a, okay, we're going to play the playoffs as if the season ended right away on August 12th. Everybody who was leading their respective divisions made it in, your top wildcard teams made it in, and so... As a kind of quick recap, you had the AL East champion New York Yankees taking care of business against Cleveland in four games, and the White Sox knocking off the AL West champion Texas Rangers in four. And just quick kind of side note there, the AL West champion Texas Rangers were well under 500 in the 1994 season. That uh, AL West was a dumpster fire. Over in the National League in the Division Series, it was the Expos sweeping the Dodgers in a quick three-game set, while the Atlanta Braves, as the wild card, were able to knock off the Cincinnati Reds in four. Your League Championship Series, you had the White Sox managing to knock the Yankees off in six. Frank Thomas was your ALCS MVP with some monster numbers. More on that in a little bit. And then in the NLCS... I mentioned this on 90s Youth Life, and I'm going to paraphrase myself and say I don't know which timeline was worse. The actual timeline where the NL East leading Montreal Expos never got a chance to try to make a postseason run, or what happened in this simulated timeline where the Braves went out and swept the Expos. One other thing I want to mention before we present this recording we decided to do a little background check on this 1994 season at the beginning of this episode. And the one thing that stood out to us was, get ready for this, Dave Winfield, future Hall of Famer Dave Winfield, was traded for dinner. This is still one of my all-time favorite baseball stories. So basically what happened was Dave Winfield was traded for a player to be named later, and uh, the strike happened before that trade could be resolved. So to uh, satisfy the other side of the trade, the executives for the two teams decide to go out for dinner with the player to be named later becoming picking up the bill for that dinner. One of the strangest baseball stories I don't think gets talked about nearly enough. Yeah, no, so I'm very glad that this gets brought up again. This definitely brings cash considerations to a uh, whole new definition. Okay, so without further ado, we are going to present this World Series simulation as we record in 2018. Quick side note, this was recorded in my childhood bedroom, so we aren't mic'd up properly, so it's kind of echoey, but I think you'll be able to understand us well, given the setup that we had. So again, here is our 1994 World Series simulation that we recorded for my 90s podcast a few years ago. Let's look at this matchup, the Braves and the White Sox in the 94 World Series. Already it's been a great year for both teams. Both teams have gone to the World Series after failing to reach the previous year in the League Championship Series. So both teams have unfinished missions right here. They're not, uh, this isn't like some upstart team that has something to prove. These are teams that have been developing for a while and they are desperate to win their first championship in some time. The White Sox haven't won since 1917. The Braves haven't won a World Series since they were in Milwaukee in the 50s. So 
you've got two teams who have unfinished business from the previous year, and uh, you've got two fan bases that are hungry. You've got a city in Atlanta that I don't believe has ever won a world championship in a major sport to this point. And the White Sox, they haven't won since 1917. So there's a lot at stake right here. I think when I look at this matchup, we know about the three stars, Max Glavin and Smoltz for the Braves. And you've got Fred McGriff and Ryan Klesko and David Justice who are doing some solid hitting for them. In the White Sox, you've got Frank Thomas and Julio Frankel, Ozzie Gant, Robin Ventura, and then we've got the four solid stars, McDowell, Fernandez, Alvarez, and Beret. I think what it comes down to is the World Series and really just the playoffs in general, it comes down to like who the great ones are. I always have high respect for people who can perform the most on the highest stage. And more often than not, the people who perform the best on the highest stage are people who have had the best careers. So given the rotation that the Braves had and will continue to have for the foreseeable future here, and the fact that the White Sox are going to go into a dry spell after the season, well, somewhat of a dry spell, they get back to the playoffs in 2000. But this is pretty much it for their core. I think the Braves will win it in six games, and it definitely helps that they have home field advantage for this. And I'm just going to tease you with this little nugget. Okay. Beware the little guy. Uh Uh-huh. Okay, so... Fall Classic, let's go. Uh, You have Greg Maddox going for the Braves. Alex Fernandez starting Game 1 of the World Series. And the White Sox actually got off to a really good start. Frank Thomas with a two-run homer in the first. Going oppo, by the way, hit it out to right. Got the White Sox on the board early. Interesting. They added a run in fourth on a Lance Johnson RBI double, scoring Darren Jackson. So they're up 3-0 and kind of maintain that for a good chunk of the game. Fernandez is cruising. He goes seven and a third, allows just one run on three hits, no walks, five strikeouts. The lone blemish on his resume in this one is David Justice homering to lead off the bottom of the eighth. He's probably out of gas by then. They've seen him enough times that they know he's going to throw. So Right, so they bring in Roberto Hernandez, because after the Justice home run, Terry Pendleton doubles to left, Javi Lopez grounds out to third. So you've got a runner on third with one out and a two-run lead. So you bring in Roberto Hernandez. Trying to get a five-out save yep. here. Jeff Blauser flies out to right. Jose Oliva comes in to pinch hit for Greg Maddox, who up to this point has gone eight innings, allowed three runs on five hits, one walk, seven strikeouts. The homer to Frank Thomas really being his only blemish. Oliva strikes out swinging, so Hernandez gets out of the jam, no problem. Mike Stanton comes on, pitches a 1-2-3-9 for Atlanta. You go to the bottom half of the inning. Roberto Kelly, infield single. Mark Lemke, single to right center, so you've got first and third, nobody out. Fred McGriff, bloop double into right center, scores both runs. We're tied at three. McCasco comes in to relieve, issues a walk, then gets a 6-4-3 double play. Terry Pendleton lines out to first, inning is over. So we go to extras, top of the 10th. The White Sox end up loading the bases with two outs, but Joey Cora pops out to short. Dennis Cook comes in to take over the 10th. Javi Lopez strikes out looking, and Jeff Blauser launches a solo homer to left field. Game is over. Braves win game one, 4-3. You have Mark Wollers getting the win over Dennis Cook. Mark Wallers, who uh, was on a famous Saturday Night Live sketch a few years after that, and he said a word I don't think we can say anymore. But, yeah, Jeff Blauser, World Series hero. Who would have believed it? Like I said, beware the little guys. Okay, so game two. So we go to game two. 
And again, White Sox take the early lead in this one. Catcher Ron Karkavice opens the scoring. He hits a solo home run with two outs in the top of the second. White Sox are on the board first. Braves respond in the bottom of the third with a three-run inning. Roberto Kelly with a solo homer with two outs. And after a Mark Lemke single, Fred McGriff shows up again. Two-run homer. It is 3-1 Braves at this point. Tom Glavin in the fourth helps out his own cause with an RBI single to score David Justice. It's 4-1. But watch out. Here come the White Sox. Top of the sixth. Frank Thomas, two-run shot. It's 4-3. Darren Jackson doubles. Robin Ventura, RBI single. We're tied at four. And then immediately David Justice homers to right, and it's 5-4 Braves. And that score would hold up for the remainder of the game. Greg McMichael pitches a 1-2-3 ninth for the save. Mike Stanton ends up getting the win. Tom Glavin lasted five and a third, gave up four runs on six hits, walked one, struck out eight. Mike Stanton throwing one and two-thirds innings in relief, walked one, struck out one. He gets the win in relief. McMichael the save. Jason Beret takes the loss, seven innings, five runs, seven hits, walked two, struck out nine, but gave up three home runs. Okay, so we go to Chicago. The Sox are down 2 nothing, And we get the DH now at this point. Mm-hmm. So this was obviously one of the other tricky things is trying to figure out who I'm having DH where and things of that nature. By the way, I should point out that when you do something like this, we switch to American League and National League teams, the lineup resets to its default setting, so you pretty much have to set everything over again, which is really annoying, but it is what it is. Correct. So for this first one, the Braves, I had Javi Lopez DH and brought back up catcher Charlie O'Brien in just so I could keep Lopez's bat in, but give him defensively a day off. For the first two games, Julio Franco did not play, or he pinch hit, but he did not start in this game. Now that the DH is back, he's in there. So the White Sox get off to a pretty good start. Robin Ventura with an RBI single, followed up by a Mark Lemke error that scores Julio Franco. White Sox lead 2 to nothing after one inning. They end up tacking on a run apiece in the fifth with a Frank Thomas solo homer. And in the sixth with a Lance Johnson RBI single, they're up 4 nothing. Braves make a run at it in the seventh. Mark Lemke with an RBI single. Ryan Klesko scores two with a single off of Roberto Hernandez. So it's 4-3. Hernandez does get out of that inning without any further damage being done. And Kirk McCaskill comes on, records the final four outs. He did walk a couple guys, but struck out one. Gets the save. Jack McDowell goes six and a third, allows three runs on 12 hits. One walk, six strikeouts, beating John Smoltz, who went six innings, gave up four runs, three of them earned on five hits, walked four, struck out five. White Sox win game three by a score of four to three. All right, they're on the board in the series. So two more games are guaranteed in Chicago. Correct. And you're going to guarantee that you send the series back to Atlanta in the next one because the White Sox win game four by a score of seven to nothing. Now, in this case, with this series, I decided I want to make sure that I'm set up just in case things go weirdly. I want Maddox to go game seven if it gets that far. So he's starting game four on three days rest. Okay. And he gets shellacked a little bit. Starts out pretty well in this one, though, to be honest. I mean, he gets through the first few innings without any issue. Uh, The White Sox take the lead for good in the fourth on a Frank Thomas solo home run. Of course. Are you starting to get a theme here? Uh, Yes, I am. So White Sox lead 1-0 after four. They break it open in the fifth with a four-run inning. Frank Thomas with an RBI single in the seventh, and Ozzie Guillen sack fly in the eighth, end up completing the scoring. Wilson Alvarez goes the distance. Two hits shutout, no walks, six strikeouts. Oh, that's good for him. So he's tying the series at two, and if I remember correctly, I believe Thomas is now homered in three of the four games. He has homered so in all four. All, all four games. Okay. To this point. All right. So it's starting to run together here. So 
It's a best of three series, so both teams recognize the importance of Game 5. I mean, the Braves want to set themselves up for two chances to win Atlanta. The White Sox know the best they can do is split in Atlanta if they want to win the championship, but they got to win Game 5 to get there. So both teams have serious aspirations for Game 5. And you've just wasted eight. Now, Greg Maddox did go the distance in the Game 4 loss. He won eight innings. Seven runs, four of them earned, so not entirely his fault, but when you continue to give up home runs to Frank Thomas, what can you do? But the Braves put to rest any talk of this nonsense. Terry Pendleton with a two-run single in the top of the first gives them a 2-0 lead. Now the White Sox get one back in the way you would expect them to get a run back. Frank Thomas home run. Frank Thomas two out solo home run. So he has now homered in five straight World Series games. And then the Braves break it open in the second after a... um, so I had Jose Oliva take over as DH in Game 4 and put Javi Lopez back at catcher. So after an Oliva ground out, Jeff Blauser gets hit by a pitch. A single through the left side for Roberto Kelly. RBI single by Mark Lemke. Three-run homer by Fred McGriff. At this point, we have knocked Alex Fernandez, who had just thrown a gem out of the game after just an inning and a third. Jose De Leon comes on to pitch. He gets Ryan Klesko looking. David Justice hits a solo home run. Terry Pendleton single. Javi Lopez walk. Jose Oliva, three-run homer. And then just to kind of complete the circle, Jeff Blauser gets hit by a pitch again. uh Uh-huh. So hit by a pitch twice in the same inning by two different pitchers for what it's worth. It's probably World Series history right there. It probably is. I didn't look. The Braves go on to win this one by a score of 12-4. to Tom Hmm. Glavin goes seven and two-thirds, allows four rounds on eight hits, walks four, strikes out four. As I mentioned, Alex Fernandez, final line, when an inning and a third allowed six runs, all earned on four hits, walked three, struck out one. Jose De Leon didn't fare much better. Scott Sanderson, their number five starter, ended up getting four mop-up innings in this one, allowed just a couple of runs. Basically just your inning eater there and kind of take it back and, okay, you know, we got to go to Atlanta and win two now. Yeah, but Atlanta's got to be ready for a party right now, getting ready to potentially celebrated championship at its own stadium. All right, so game six, we are back in Atlanta, and I will preface this game by saying, holy crap. Okay. So, top of the third, Tim Raines, I bumped down to the two spot and moved Lance Johnson up to one just to try to shake things up in the lineup a little bit. Just get a bit of a spark offensively, and it ended up mm-hmm. working. Right. Tim Raines hits a two-run homer in the third, Followed up by... Another Frank Thomas home run. Okay, he's, I don't think anyone's homered in every game in a World Series before. I don't so. I don't believe so. So, the, so he's already an October legend. The major league record for home runs in consecutive games is eight, I believe. And I think there were three major leaguers who hold that distinction. But that's regular season. This man has hit a home run in every game of the World Series to date. So, White Sox have a 3-0 lead here. Braves get one back in the fourth. Uh, RBI double by Javi Lopez. Oh, and I should mention, too, that since we're back in Atlanta, we lose the DH. Mm -hmm. So, in an effort to try and get a little more offense, and I double-check defensive positions just to make sure I'm not doing anything stupid, Uh I have Julio Franco playing second base in this game. Okay. Pointing out all the stops in an elimination game. That's kind of what I go with here, so just to keep that in mind. So 3-1 White Sox after four. Then in the fifth, the Braves take over. Mark Lemke, RBI single. Ryan Klesko, two-run double, gives him the lead. Javi Lopez singles him home, so it is to 5-3 through five innings. The Braves add on one more in the seventh on a Terry Pendleton RBI single, scoring Fred McGriff. So it is 6-3 to 
going into the eighth, the White Sox have six outs left to play with or their season is over. So Sounds like this is when things get crazy. Uh, that is one way to put it. Okay. So top of the eighth, I'm going to go through batter by batter here. So Mike Stanton has taken over for the Braves. Who did I have starting this one? John Smoltz ended up starting this one, you know, setting up for Maddox in a potential game seven. Yeah. So Smoltz has gone seven innings, allowed three runs on six hits, walked one, struck out seven. Mm-hmm. His only blemish has been the two home runs. Yes. So Tim Raines flies out to left. Frank Thomas walks. Julio Franco hits a shallow fly out to left field, and this is labeled plus plus, which means a great defensive play. So mm-hmm. Ryan Klesko must have made some sort of ridiculous diving catch of some sort. So you've got a runner at first with two outs. Robin Ventura walks, so you get two on, two out. Darren Jackson triples, scoring both runners, so it's 6-5. Mark Wolers comes in. I had Mike Lavalier coming in in this one, left-handed bat against the right-handed Smoltz. Mm-hmm. Figured it made sense. He walks. Ozzie Guillen, RBI single. We are tied. Mm-hmm. Joey Cora comes on to pinch hit for Roberto Hernandez. He walks. Back to the top of the lineup. Lance Johnson, RBI triple, three-run score. The White Sox lead at 9-6. to six. <laughs> So Kirk McCasco comes on to pitch the eighth for the White Sox. Jose Oliva comes on to pinch hit for Steve Bedrosian, takes ball four. Ozzy Guillen gloves a grounder, makes a bad throw to second. Roberto Kelly reaches on the error. Runners are at second and third, nobody out. Two-run single, Mark Lemke. It's nine to eight. Dennis Cook comes in, gets a fly out from McGriff, a pop out from Klesko. David Justice walks, you've got two guys on. Javi Lopez fly ball double to left field. Lemke and Justice score. It is 10-9 Braves, and just like that, the Sox are on the ropes again. Greg McMichael is in. Frank Thomas strikes out looking. Julio Franco with a bloop single to center field, so okay, you got a chance. Robin Ventura infield single. Darren Jackson strikes out swinging. And then remember, your backup catcher, Mike Lavalier. It's a Texas League single to right field. Julio Franco scores. Robin Ventura slides in under the tag. He's safe at third. So, game is tied. All the champagne and the sheets are coming down the Braves clubhouse right now. Ozzy Ginn strikes out on a ball out of the zone. So we are through eight and a half. It is Braves 10, White Sox 10. All right. How on the edge of your seat are you? Um, I'm nervous as hell right now. I'll say uh, that. that. That is how I get with a lot of these simulations. Let me just end the drama here. Bottom of the ninth, Jeff Blauser crushes a solo home run to right Again. center field. Jeff Blauser, I told you, beware the little guy. Jeff I'm, Blauser. Jeff freaking Blauser. I'm sorry to break your heart on this, no. on this one, Jeffy. Twice. Two walk-off home runs in the series. So needless to say, he is your 1994 World Series MVP. As unlikely as it sounds. Okay, what is World Series MVP Jeff Blauser's line in that series? So World Series MVP Jeff Blauser's line in this one. So weird to say that, by the way. It really is, isn't it? But just goes to show, it could be anybody. It doesn't Mm -hmm. have to be someone who's a regular contributor. So Jeff Blauser's slash line in the World Series. 333, 417, 714. Wow. So he went 7 of 21, scored four times, drove in three, two walk-off home runs, added a triple for good measure. Did strike out seven times and walk only once, but he also was hit by a pitch twice in game five. But I was really tempted to give MVP honors in the losing effort to Frank Thomas. He slashed 391, 462, 1174. Slugging? Yes. My gosh. He slugged 11.74. Finished that series, the exact numbers. He went 9 of 23, six home runs, one homer in every game, scored eight times, drove in nine, walked three times, struck out six. So, I mean, he 
absolutely played to the level of an MVP. Yeah, it just wasn't quite enough. And the Sox did not have Jeff Flauser. And you would think Isaac Guillen would have been the shortstop of choice in that series, but that's how funny baseball is. So, to be completely fair, Jeff Blauser did make a couple of all-star appearances, including one in 1993, which was the year before this. And we have said numerous times on this podcast, this is a saying that originated with you, Lucas, beware the little guy. And yet, it was a little guy who hit two walk-off home runs to beat my White Sox in this World Series that did not actually happen, I must emphasize. And to this day... I have not been able to look at Jeff Blauser in the same way, whether or not he actually did any of this. As a point of reference here, in the 1994 season, over the course of 96 games, Jeff Blauser in reality slashed 258, 329, 382. He hit six regular season home runs, which, okay, fair, again, 1993 All-Star. Not really known for his power. I mean, solid Major League shortstop, but more of a complimentary piece than anything else. And for the simulator to go ahead and give him one walk-off home run in Game 1, okay, you know what? You get unlikely heroes all the time. Stuff happens. This makes sense. I still, five years later, cannot believe what happened when I clicked Play Game on Game 6 and went scrolling through everything and got to the very bottom of the play-by-play and went, oh my god, Jeff Blauser did it again? I don't know what the algorithm was on when you simulated this, but it has become kind of an inside joke for Lucas and I since that time. And it has become such a thing with us that when the time came for me to pick the groomsmen for my wedding about a year after we recorded this, I decided that I would make things a little interesting with Lucas when I asked him to be one of my groomsmen. So what I did was I wrote handwritten letters in cursive to all of my groomsmen and my ushers. And I included photos of me with the groomsmen slash usher in question. I did not have a photo of myself with Lucas at the time. So I did the only thing I could do. I went online, tracked down a 1994 Jeff Blauser baseball card, and I sent that to him instead. And he said yes by showing me the card when we went on a double date at the time that he received it. So that's why I knew he was going to be in my wedding. There was no question about it. And there was no other person in the world I could have possibly bought this baseball card for or given this baseball card to. I don't think a 1994 Jeff Blauser baseball card is in high demand, but for us, it is an extremely high demand. I mean, the timing of that, too, couldn't have been more perfect because I got it in the mail the day that we were going out for dinner. I had just gotten back from work and opened the letter. Very nice handwritten letter. And then, you know, inside I find this 1994 Jeff Blauser baseball card, and it made me so happy. And so when we met for dinner that night, my reaction was basically to the effect of, you know what, Jeffy, I was kind of on the fence at first, and then I saw this, I'm in. And you took a picture shortly afterwards of the card hanging in your office cubicle, correct? Yes, and that card still uh, has that place of honor in my uh, office cubicle, which makes a little more sense now that I'm going into uh, my day job two and eventually three days a week here as we uh, turn the calendar over to 2024. 
So, does anybody ever ask you about that baseball card? Not a ton, although it did make a couple of appearances in the very short-lived web video series Under the Carrot, as we were kind of grabbing random things to kind of add to the background as little Easter eggs, and I think from about episode four onward, I went, okay, I'm gonna go grab my Jeff Blauser card and stick it right front and center here, and... I mean, I've had a couple people ask, and I've told the story a little bit of, in an alternate universe where the 1994 World Series gets played, Jeff Blauser wins World Series MVP on the back of two walk-off home runs, including the series winner. So, the other player who made huge contributions, as you might have heard, was Frank Thomas. He homered in every single World Series game, unheard of. In fact, as you mentioned in the episode... You could make a case for him being only the second losing player to win World Series MVP for that reason, joining Bobby Richardson of the Yankees in 1960. But the fact is, Frank Thomas was eventually on a team that did go to the World Series, but he was too injured to play. So Frank Thomas officially never played in the World Series. And here's why I bring this up. When I was doing my preliminary research for this podcast, like less than a year before we officially started this podcast... The World Series history documentary that I was watching highlighted the fact that Don Mattingly was on those 94 Yankees, and this was particularly brutal timing for him because he was on the back end of his career. Mattingly would never play in a World Series. He would, in fact, only play one more season after that, and he would never reach the Fall Classic. And he had to look at several Hall of Famers who never played in the World Series, and I'm just going to rip the band-aid off you now, Lucas. There were several Cubs legends who never made it to the World Series. Ernie Banks, Billy Williams, Fergie Jenkins, Ron Santo, Andre Dawson, Ryan Sandberg, Lee Smith. All in the Hall of Fame. None of them ever made it to the World Series. But it's not just former Cubs who did not make it to the World Series despite having Hall of Fame careers. There are some surprising names on this list. Gaylord Perry, Ralph Kiner, Rod Carew, Luke Appling, and Ted Lyons, both White Sox legends, never made it to the World Series. And then you have the Mariners with a couple of Hall of Famers. Ken Griffey Jr., Edgar Martinez never made it to the World Series. Ichiro Suzuki is not in the Hall of Fame at the time we're recording this, but he will definitely get in on the first ballot. He never made it in. And it's just crazy how for all of the legends that we have talked about during the course of this podcast, there are several that we will never officially be able to talk about because they just never got the chance to compete at the highest level. In fact, Fergie Jenkins never even made it to the playoffs despite pitching for the longest time. I do want to circle back a little bit too with Frank Thomas, and we mentioned his whole home run in every single World Series game. And I want to go through the all-time single World Series home run leaders in World Series history. There is a nine-way tie for fourth of players who hit four home runs in a series. Hank Bauer in 1958, Babe Ruth in 1926, Duke Snyder in 1952, Lenny Dykstra in our previous episode of 1993, Duke Snyder again in 1955, Willie Aikens in 1980, Gene Tennis in 1972, Lou Gehrig in 1928, and then one guy who we have not talked about yet because this one happens in the future, Barry Bonds hit four in 2002. We'll get to that in just a few weeks' time. Three players have hit five home runs in a World Series. The most notable of these was the Reggie, Reggie postseason of 1977. Chase Utley would hit nine for the 2009 Phillies, 
and George Springer of the 2017 Astros also hit five in that fall classic. So if this series had actually happened in reality, Frank Thomas would be your all-time single World Series home run king. Crazy to think about, and sadly it's never happened for him. By the way, we mentioned Fergie Jenkins on his 81st birthday. He is 81 the day we're recording this, and he pitched in the big leagues for 19 years. Gaylord Perry pitched for 22 years, never made it to the World Series. And in fact, Perry only pitched in one National League Championship Series with the 71 Giants. So crazy to think how you can pitch in Major League Baseball for 20 years or so and still never get very far in the playoffs. If you even get to the playoffs, it just goes to show you how, especially today with the playoff field expanding even further, you are never guaranteed any success. We can name a few players playing now who have not made it to the World Series, who probably should have by now, but we will not name drop them out of fear that they might make the 2024 World Series once we talk about that. So we'll save that for a later time, maybe. The way our schedule is kind of going, we will be caught up with the most recent World Series as of the time we're recording this, sometime probably this coming summer. We'll have some content probably to come out in between our 2023 episode and our 2024 episode, but that is a long ways off. Congratulations to the virtual 1994 Atlanta Braves again on winning this fictional World Series. And the real-life 1995 Atlanta Braves will, in fact, get back to the World Series. In reality, they are still looking for their first World Championship in Atlanta. This will, in fact, be their third time in this decade trying to win the World Series. Is the third time a charm? Or is a similarly named Pence winner from the American League, which has not been back in a very long time, going to be able to knock them off for this third time going back to the World Series in the 90s? Tune in next week to find out. So I'm Jeffrey Clark. Thanks for listening to our 1994 episode. Then there were two, a History of the World series. It was a simulated one, but it was an episode all the same. We didn't want to leave you guys without something. Uh, this is usually where I say we'll see you next time, which always gives me the last word. I am deferring the last word to Lucas because between the time they recorded our last episode and when we recorded this episode, he lost somebody who was very important to a very important person in his life. So, Lucas. Yeah, thank you, Jeffrey. So, this week's episode of Then There Were Two, A History of the World Series, is dedicated in loving memory of Laura Fisher. She's a good friend of mine, passed away on December 5th in just her 30s. She leaves behind her husband of two years, Vincent Brower, a longtime friend of mine, and their two-year-old daughter, Harmony. And I want to take this moment as well. If you or someone you know is considering suicide, know that you are not alone and that help is available. Locally to us, there are resources available through the Suicide Prevention Services of America here in suburban Chicago. They've been a resource that my family has supported and benefited from over the years, and they are part of the larger 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. If you or someone you know is in need of assistance, please call 988.